I'm here with someone who needs no introduction to NHR listeners and the people of Nottingham, Colin Slater, MBE. Uh, thank you very much for talking to us, Colin. Pleasure. Now, I'd like to, if, if you don't mind, I'll take you right back to your early days. Uh, born in Bradford, I believe. I was. 1934, would that yes. be right? February 1934. And do you have a, an earliest memory of your time in Bradford? Not particularly, I don't know. Um, I mean, obviously, I have a memory of where I was brought up, yeah. the house in which I was brought up by my parents and members of the wider family, both on my mother's and father's side. I have lots of memories of, of the people that I seem to be going to see or they were coming to see us all the time. Yeah, so quite a big wider family then, was it? Yes, there was. Yeah. Yes. And and the jobs that your parents did? Um, my father was a grocer, um, and that's how, among the people that he knew, was uh, was one uh, Billy Morrison. Right. That may not register with you. Who on mm. earth is Billy Morrison? <laughs> These days, his stores, the family stores, are uh, everywhere. William Morrison. Really? And he was the founder. Oh, my word. And I've been out with my dad in the city, the centre of Bradford, many a time. And he said, oh, look, there's Billy Morrison coming <laughs> up. And uh, they used to stand and chat yeah. about business. Yeah. Yes. And what were your parents like? Were they, were they strict parents? or? My dad wasn't. No. Um, uh, uh, but my mother was. Uh, she was the stricter of the two, which I don't suppose is too usual. Um, he could occasionally uh, show me uh, that uh, what I'd done or said was not acceptable. Uh, but generally speaking, no, it was my mother who uh, stopped me saying or doing things of which she disapproved. And what was school life like in Bradford? Well, school life in the uh, in the early days, going to... Uh, the same primary and junior school on the same site. The uh, primary department was downstairs and the juniors were upstairs. Um, and maybe I, I shouldn't have thought this at the time, but I did. I'm only being honest about how I felt. About some teachers, I felt to be in fear. Really? Yes. Um, they... Uh, they really did put the fear of God into me. Yeah. And particularly as it approached that crucial stage of life, when I was taking what became known as the 11 plus, but in my day was known as the scholarship. Right. And you got a scholarship to go on to a grammar school. And if you didn't go to a grammar school, you went to some lesser school. And uh, Miss Platt, I shall remember the name to my dying day, yeah. Miss Platt. Um, she could adopt a most sarcastic tone <laughs> if you did anything that she didn't think was up to standard. She really, really made me put my nose down to it and work harder than I'd worked in the earlier forms. This was in the fourth form, and I'm what? Ten and a half, eleven, and uh, eventually we got the results, and I had passed. It was down to her, really. Wonderful. She'd achieved that for me. A lot of people have that one teacher, don't they, that they remember? Yes. 
Yeah. Yes, and it was Miss Platt. Wow. Yes. And then is it right you then went on to Bellevue Grammar School? I did, indeed. Not Bradford Grammar School. Uh, people ask me to this day, did you go to Bradford Grammar School? No, I didn't. At 13, I was put forward to take an entrance examination, which would have meant changing schools from Bellevue to Bradford Grammar, which is actually nearer to home. Yeah. Uh, and I passed. And I refused to go. Really? Because I said, I went to Bellevue knowing nobody. Nobody else from my junior school was going to Bellevue. Nobody did. They were scattered across other grammar schools in the city. Yeah. Um, my closest friend went to Carlton Grammar School, for example. But I was at Bellevue and I made friends. We all do, don't we? You, you go to school, you don't know people, you feel a bit lonely for the first week or two, but eventually you make friends. And I was in a circle of about half a dozen and we went to sport together, we went to cricket and we went to football and we saw each other during the long summer holiday because we all lived in different parts of Bradford. Nobody lived close to anybody else. Yeah. And uh, I could recite the names to you of the half dozen of us. But um, I said, I don't want to do that all over again. Yeah. When I, if I go to Bradford Grammar School, I don't want to start again. Yeah. It's been hard work starting now and, and, and making friends. It's a big thing at that age, isn't it? Yes, it, it yeah, is. Definitely. So I, I refused to go. <laughs> and did you, at that time, when you were at grammar school, did you have any idea that journalism would be your route? Uh, yes, I did, uh, for two reasons. Um, the subjects on which I shone and on which on my school certificate I got a distinction, you had to pass six subjects to get your school certificate. And I got a distinction in two, English language and English literature. Wow. They were the two. Yeah. And they, in a sense, directed me about what I could do best, which was English. Yeah. And in addition to that, um, I went with my parents, and it must have been when I was about 13, because my dad sadly died very suddenly when I was 14, but at 13, we went to this event um, in Shipley and uh, we seemed to be a long way from the action. I can't remember what the event was, but it was outside the town hall and you had to crane your neck to see anything and you couldn't hear too much either. And I said to my parents, who are they over there? They seem to have such a good view. And one of them said, oh, they're journalists, they're covering the event for the paper. And I thought to myself, I'd like to be in that position. It's funny that's stuck in your mind. That yeah. seems like a good job to me. <laughs> and it turned out that way. And it turned out that way, yes. And you touched on it there that your, your father died, unfortunately, when you were quite young, which must have been tough on you and your mum. Uh, yes, on both of us. I, oh, I, I was devastated. Uh, when he died. He died on the evening of the first evening. We'd finished school at ten past four. I went home, we had a meal and into the evening. Um, he collapsed and died. I mean, right at the beginning of the six-week holiday. Yeah. Um, and that was um, a terrible shock. I can imagine, yeah. Um, because 
he played um, football and cricket to a decent standard, uh, cricket for longer than at football, and he was better at cricket than football. And I have medals uh, to this day that he won Wonderful. at cricket. Um, playing in the, for instance, in the Bradford League in the Priestley Cup, which is the knockout competition. And uh, he won medals in the Priestley Cup with Bowling Old Lane. That was the club he played for. Oh, wonderful name. Yeah, Bowling Old Lane. It's off Manchester Road in Bradford. Um, in fact, it, uh, when I drive up Manchester Road these days, which I do to come back to Nottingham, um, I look on the left-hand side and there is Bowling Old Lane. And the cricket club is still going. But I have medals uh, that he won uh, playing cricket for Bowling Old Lane. And he was a very good cricketer and used to take me to cricket matches and teach me about cricket. So he introduced yeah. you to sport then, I suppose. Oh, yes, he did. Yeah. Um, and my life really, in that sense, fell apart. Mm. You know, what was going to become of me uh, without him? Uh, but eventually there were other people who stepped in and, uh, and took me to games. An uncle took me to a very big match in Manchester uh, and it was—I mean, it, it made up a, a, a lot of ground for, uh, after my father's death that he was so kind to me. Um, <laughs> um, he had a car. My parents never had a car, and uh, we drove over uh, from Bradford to Manchester long before the M62. We drove on some pretty horrendous roads. Uh, in his MG sports car. Wow. You may imagine that I felt good in that. Uh, yeah. Um, and we got to Main Road, where Manchester United were still playing quite a long time after the war, because Old Trafford had been bombed in the war. And we went to Main Road. We had tickets. There was no segregation. And the tickets admitted us to a very steep banking behind one goal. And he kept saying to um, other men who were already there, could you let us through so we can get a bit nearer the front so that, so that he can see better? Well, I wasn't tiny even then, so, yeah. but nevertheless, he got us both towards the front. And uh, Manchester men were all around us, some young, some old, but a mix of Manchester men. And they shared out their toffees and their wine gums and so on. <laughs> Uh, and there was not one bit of trouble in a crowd of 72,000 people. And we thought, well, I did, that it was a lambs to the slaughter to be playing uh, Manchester United. It was the first team created by Sir Matt Busby. And uh, I thought, this is curtains. Um, and the result? Manchester United nil, Bradford Park Avenue nil. Bradford Park Avenue, yes. <laughs> the name yeah. conjures up old days, isn't it? And back to Park Avenue the following Saturday, nil-nil again, and a coin was spun at the end of the game to determine where the third match would take place. Manchester won the call, and it was played at Manchester. He didn't manage uh, to get tickets for the uh, third game, so I can't say I saw that. And uh, Manchester United beat Bradford... 
Park Avenue 5-0. Oh. The dream died <laughs> on that day. But great memories, though. Oh, it's yes. Fantastic. Yes. 72,000, no segregation, no trouble. Amazing. And I know that, um, so you must have been, would you have been living on your own with your mum when you got your first journalism job in Bradford? Oh, yes, I was. Yes, and I got that first journalism job on a little group of two weekly papers, the Shipley Guardian and the Bingley Guardian, serving two independent towns, Shipley and Bingley. Uh, the Shipley Guardian was printed first and was uh, available Thursday afternoons, and the Bingley Guardian was printed later, and that was available uh, from the middle of Friday mornings. And uh, the when we we were all in on a Friday, we had to be in. The editor insisted we were in. I didn't know why, but it, I I learned. We all went into his office. We all were required to carry a copy of the papers with us, and he turned the pages one by one for both editions, and commented on things. And uh, he would turn the page and say, and I'll use a real name. Oh, Alec, that story at the top of page three, it was good to get a very strong lead on page three, but truth is it was good enough for page one, but I needed a good top for page three, and that's why it's not on page one. So a real art to produce in the papers in those yes. days, isn't it? And, oh, they were no, they were, nothing was an accident. Yeah. And uh, uh, he, he, he spoke of everybody. And I thought, sitting there quietly, I thought, well, <clears throat> won't say anything to me. But he did. And he said something very encouraging. I came out feeling, oh, 10 feet tall, really, from what he'd said. Um, and uh, I learned, because there came a point some few months later, when we all had to go in separately. There was no order to it. <clears throat> but we went in on a Monday morning to see him privately. And uh, when I was in there on this particular Monday morning, I said, oh, and I, I think that's it from the weekend. And he said, yes, but just stay where you are. And then he told me that he'd not been too pleased with a story the previous week. Right. And how it could have been improved. It was constructive criticism. This is how you would have done better with it than you did. It's all experience. And that's what I'm trying to give you. So you listen and learn, don't yes, you? you yeah. Do. Yeah. Yes, you Yes. And I believe, is it right, a kind of the first... Um, reporting you did on sport was a, a bit of a sort of strange bedfellow speedway and water yes, it polo was. yes that's right what what can you report on water polo it sounds oh, amazing oh no no i mean the shipley united were a good team and uh, i used to go all over with them um they played their home matches on a friday and the away games were either friday or saturday evening but they went around to Halifax, Selby and so on, and they had a good team. And I did that from fairly early on, um, probably from into my second year, I started doing water polo. And then the man who covered Speedway, which was a big seller, it was a very well-supported sport. Um, of course, it was played in Bradford, if you can say, played with... 
uh, motorbikes involved um, at, at Oxford Stadium, where, which was the home of Bradford Northern Rugby League Club. Right. That's where it was played, or where the events took place. And I used to go there Saturday evenings. I'd gone there for pleasure myself. Uh, and when uh, the Speedway writer was taken quite seriously ill, I was dispatched uh, to find my way to the press box and sit there and, and, and start covering Speedway. So water polo on a Friday and Speedway on a Saturday, you may imagine that Sundays were taken up with a lot of copywriting. Definitely, yeah. And then, was it? I believe it was around 1959, was it, when you came to Nottingham? Yes, it was. I came here and started work um, on the 10th of August, 1959, on the Nottingham Evening News in Parliament Street, and that meant that I was also on the football news, because that was an age when Saturdays, so far as football fans were concerned, Saturdays were dominated by sports papers. Yeah. And we, uh, the Evening News, published the Big Pinkon, the football news, and across the road... The Evening Post published the Football Post, which was a tabloid size and on white paper. Oh, wow. Um, and they, there was great rivalry. Yeah. And the big rivalry was to get the papers out first yeah. to beat the opposition. And there was one Monday morning when I walked into work to be told by Jim Hall, the news editor, he said, uh, oh, um... Mr. Cragg wants to see you. I said, oh, really? Why would that be? He said, I have no idea, but uh, you need to go downstairs and see him. A very pleasant man. Oh, come in, he said. Yes, I do need to see you. Come in, sit down. No, you won't know this, he said, but on Saturday evening we lost 10,000 sales of the football news. 10,000? 10,000, because we were second on the streets. And we were second on the streets because of you. <laughs> because we were waiting and waiting and waiting for the result of your game at Barnsley. Oh, no. And that's why we were late and it cost us 10,000 copies. Because the overall circulation was about 70,000 of the football news normally. Yeah. And uh, so he said, um, what do you have to say for yourself? And I said, it's not my fault. <laughs> Good answer. I said, not my fault, because um, at uh, Barnsley, we were sharing a telephone. We did not have an exclusive line. Right. We were share I was sharing a telephone, and the local man wasn't going to give that up yeah. for my sake. So I had to wait until he'd finished. He said, who took this decision? And I gave him the name. And on what grounds did they give you for that decision? I said, economy. I said, I suppose it meant, and this is in very old language, I suppose it meant saving something like half a guinea, <laughs> which was 10 shillings and sixpence. For 10,000 readers. <laughs> yes, yes. He said, it will never happen again that you share a phone. And it never did. Wonderful. That's it, what you wanted to hear, I suppose. Yes, and it? it never did. And was there a particular reason why you came to Nottingham? Well, yes, because I'd been on the weekly paper. I finished as editor of the Shipley Guardian, and I did that for two years. And I'd been there for nine years, much longer than most people were. Most people left after 
I suppose that most people stayed around for about four years. Yeah. But nine was exceptional. And it was time I got into daily newspaper journalism. Uh, otherwise, the years were going by and they were going to pass me by. And I started making inquiries because having been, I might have been a, a young fledgling editor uh, of the Shipley Guardian, but I was the editor. I used to meet other editors at meetings. Yeah. And I began to say, I'm looking for a job. And I got offers, but the best offer I got was from the Evening News here in Parliament Street. Wonderful. Wonderful. And that's why I came. I came for work and I came to join the Evening News and the football news. And the football news. And was it right, the first Notts game you covered was a 2-1 victory over Chester? It was. Notts, um, before I came, had suffered two successive relegations. They went from the second division to the third and the third division into the fourth. And the game against Chester was the first ever game Notts County played at the fourth tier. Really? The first ever and they were a goal behind at half-time, and then they picked it up in the second half and won by two goals to one in front of a crowd. Considering what had happened over the two previous years, the crowd was exceptional. I was staggered. 9,000 people were there. And I thought, well, maybe it's not going to be so bad after all, despite the relegations. Maybe it's going to be OK. And in fact, it was promotion. Yeah, that, that year. Yes, yeah. Notts finished second in the table behind Walsall, who were champions. Notts were second, and Notts were... There were only two places for promotion, no playoffs uh, then, and not for years afterwards, but up into the third division. And who was the manager at that time? Frank Hill played for uh, Arsenal in their great, side, great team under Herbert Chapman in the 30s, won the title three years running of the first division, and uh, he was the manager, a Scottish international. And what I ought to add about him and the manager at Forest, who if in the first instance that I was here was Billy Walker, who'd been manager when they won the cup in 59, uh, and the manager at Mansfield, who just as Andy Beattie succeeded Billy Walker, who retired, um, the Mansfield manager was replaced, it wasn't a retirement in his case, uh, by uh, Raish Carter. Oh, right. And these three great internationals, I mean, Raish Carter was one of the finest players I've ever seen. Uh, and Andy Beattie played uh, fullback for Scotland and had been the first Scotland team manager Yeah. when that was a new post. And Frank Hill. Um, had, uh, had, had done his stuff as well with Scotland. And uh, they used to be paid for writing page three of the football news. Oh, right. They wrote it. They wrote it themselves. No ghosting. Wow. They used to bring their copy in and they arranged themselves to come in on a Thursday afternoon. <laughs> so they used to come in and the delightful Mavis Brand, who was the editor's secretary, the editor being a man called Harry Swinburne, uh, Mavis made a pot of tea and brought it into the sports room uh, and the door was closed. I used to join them. I used to make sure I was not... I, I would be entered on the diary 
for writing my own football uh, news notes. Yeah. But in truth, I got those done. Yeah. And I was free to wander through. And I used to sit and listen to these three wise people who knew so much about the world of football. I bet, yeah, yeah. All delightful men. And unfortunately, I suppose it, it wasn't too long in a way that we uh, started a bit of the Notts County merry-go-round away from the pitch, because in 1965 there was quite a... The club very nearly went out of business, didn't they? Yes, it did. Um, I became aware of it one Sunday evening, sitting at home, when the telephone rang and the caller at the other end was Fred Williamson, the chairman of Notts County, who had taken over uh, when Len Machin, who had a firm at uh, Gotham called Joy Woolley, he was a manufacturer, Mm. Uh, he was voted out of the chair because um, he had taken money out of the club without informing the other directors. And as he said, they never asked me anything when I was putting money in. (laughs) So he thought it was quite above board to do it the other way. But they they took exception to it. And um, the members of the board of that time, Fred Williamson was in the chair. Of course, Len Machin was not at this meeting, nor his son, who was also a director, Peter Machin. But the others were there, like uh, Albert Pounder and Bill Laurie and uh, Stanley Thomas. And uh, I walked in to be told, we've come to the end of the line, there is no money left, and the club is closing down. Oh, my word. And, uh, I mean, they all looked... Uh, very upset and very subdued um, because one or two of them carried a bit of a a punch really in life. Uh, Another director whom I didn't mention, Harry Moss, was also there. I said, and I sometimes think to myself, and I'm going to say this to give uh, people who are young in a job some encouragement. I don't know where I got the courage from to say to them, the, these men of some stature, yeah, running their own firms. How did I get the courage to say, you can't do that? You cannot do it. Mm-hmm. Hmm? You must have cared, Colin, <laughs> even at that early age, I suppose, well, about Notts County. Um, and uh, so, you know, I said, is there nobody, is there no lifeline anywhere? And uh, they ummed and ahed a bit, and then they said, well, there is a man who will give money to Knox County to keep it alive, but he has no confidence in the governance and administration of the club. And I said, well, he's got to be given confidence. It's quite simple, isn't it? He's got to be given confidence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but, you know, how do you do that? (laughs) <laughs> and I, I said, getting into my stride, well, are you aware that in the, an adjoining road here lives Andy Beatty in retirement? Do I have your permission to go and see him tomorrow morning and say, you are closing down Notts County and I want to ask you if you will come to Meadow Lane. There'll be no pay involved, but will you come? and have your name as a former Scotland manager attached to the club and give some confidence 
to a man who has money and will put money in. He said, I'll do better than that for you. I will do my best to bring Peter Doherty with me, who had been the first uh, Northern Ireland team manager. Yeah, yeah. And, and again, one of the great players uh, of the era. And if, uh, if I said, yes, by all means, oh yes, please. And it was all sealed by the Friday, Sunday to Friday, and it was the lead story in the Evening Post, which had then been merged with the news, and it was the splash story on page one with my byline. And that confidence meant that Bill Hockcroft, I believe, Bill invested Hockcroft in the was club. the man. I went to his show. He was a motor car salesman with a showroom in Carlton Hill. And I went to his showroom uh, with Harry Moss. He sat and signed the cheque and handed it over. And I remember vividly Harry saying, well, um, you better give it to Colin because I've got other business. He was actuary of the Nottingham Trustee Savings Bank. Right. He said, I've got business commitments. So he said, he can go to the ground and handed in. And I went and saw the secretary, Chick Heath. And Chick Heath got this cheque in his hand and looked at it and burst into tears because he knew what it meant. What it meant, and he knew his club was saved. Marvellous, marvellous. And what were the years like after that? Because they were. They had a bit of success, did they, after that? Not immediately, not, immediately. not by any means, no. Success didn't start. Um, the 60s were wasted, really. And the waste began with the unnecessary, as well as unfortunate, sacking of Frank Hill, the manager. Right. He was sent, it was most discourteous, he was sent a three-line typewritten letter in the post, telling him. It was, it was shocking. And, and Frank left and went to Charlton and managed them and did well for them. But, uh, and I kept in touch with him. We, we'd become friends and I kept in touch with him. But after that, it, 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 it was a troubled time. The club suffered as it suffers now from instability. There was no stability. People think that instability is a new phenomenon. Nothing of the sort. I saw instability in the early 1960s and right through until in November 1969, nearly 50 years ago, Jimmy Cyril came as manager. That was his first time, right. November 69, yes. So I had 10 years working alongside Jimmy, about which many a story could be told. What a character. And, um, but I, I was tipped off about what was happening and I knew that the announcement of Jimmy's appointment would be made at three o'clock Saturday afternoon when Notts were playing at Wrexham. Right. And it was decided by Radio Nottingham that I would not go to Wrexham. I would be here in the studio and at three o'clock I would announce the appointment and they would keep coming back to the story throughout yeah. the afternoon as I sat there. And how long had you, had you been actually broadcasting then at that point? Well, I was, um, this was 69. I'd started with Radio Nottingham in its first year, 1968. 
I was in on the ground floor right. in 1968. And was it was it a nervous thing? Your first broadcast? Do you remember that first match that you that you covered? I think Not was lost five 0 at Lincoln. Of course I do. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. Um, yeah, I think I was. But bear in mind a number of things. There was nothing like the equipment that there is now. Uh, the equipment was a telephone, mm-hmm. and there were no full-time commentaries. There were no 90-minute commentaries uh, at all. Um, they, we weren't allowed by the Football League. We were allowed three score flashes in each half. That was it? That was it. Just three? Yes, yes. And so into um, these different score flashes, first half and second half, um, I had to pile in the uh, news of the goals that Lincoln were firing past the Notts goalkeeper <laughs> all, all through and they lost 5 nothing. Mm, I thought it's got to get better than this In those early days did kind of Jimmy stand out at all? Did, did you think he had a kind of a, a great skill in, in managing? Oh, yes he, he struck me immediately mind you I'd known him very slightly he played for Bradford Park Avenue. Really? Mm. He came from Celtic to Bradford Park Avenue. And I knew him. I didn't know him well. I don't want to give the wrong impression. But I knew him and he knew me. And uh, on the Monday morning, after I'd done all this work on the Saturday afternoon to announce his appointment, I rang Brentford and asked if it would be possible for me to speak to him. And I said to him, you may not remember me, but I remember you, and I explained who I was. And he gave the, the impression that he knew who I was. We chatted on the phone. And time and again, over his many years, he said to me, you were the only man who rang me when I was appointed. He remembered that. Yes, he did. Yeah. meant more to him than I realised. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Um, and the first game, when he wasn't in charge, he was sitting at the back of the stand, was an FA Cup tour against Rotherham, for whom Les Brad was playing, and Knotts lost out of the FA Cup. And uh, at the back of the stand, I was going down to find a player for interview, and he was there. And uh, he said to me, what did you think? I said, oh, Jimmy, what you think is much more important. What did you think? He said, they were no wound up, but they'll be wound up next week. And they were, and they won at Workington. And I've always thought it symbolic that they won the first away match yeah. that he had charge of. Yeah, you could see a change, maybe. Oh, yes. Yeah. And the players knew there was a change. Yeah. And, they, I mean, there must just be so many stories of him. And I know you, you were very fond of Jack Wheeler as well, weren't yes, you? Yes, I was. The, the kind of partnership that he had at yes. Meadow Lane with, with, yeah. the, with Jimmy. Yes, and, and then some of the great players. I think it'd be fair to say one of your favourites was Don Masson. The favourite. The favourite. A lovely passer of a ball, Raj Carter, whom I've mentioned, used to say, if you can't pass, you can't play. Used to say that. Um, well, Don could pass a ball. He yeah. could pass a ball. I never saw a better pass by him, even by him, than uh, one Easter Monday, not going for promotion. They went to Cambridge United. And the pass that he delivered to Trevor Christie completely split the Cambridge defence. 
and Christie scored. Yeah. Um, oh, phenomenal ability yeah. that he had. Yes. That's marvellous. I, I remember it too, being a youngster watching um, uh, watching Notts County, the likes of Trevor Christie and Ian McCulloch, who was always yes. one of my favourites. Ian McCulloch, uh, Jimmy had uh, gone to Sheffield United to be their manager. Didn't work out, but at Sheffield United, he wanted to sign Ian McCulloch. And Sheffield United said, no, we, we've no money. Really? So it didn't happen. And when Jimmy returned at Notts County, he pursued Ian McCulloch again, and Jack Dunnett did provide the money for him to be signed. Yeah. And I know they, they obviously had the, the amazing run into the old First Division, which is what is now the Premiership. And in the first match... Won at Villa Park. I remember that, yeah. 1 0. Yeah. With McCulloch scoring the goal at the Holt End in the first half. Yeah. That's to say, the Holt End where the Villa fans are all packed in. Yeah. And there's the story as well that I know you've told me before when um, when, when not secured promotion and there's a certain Des Lynham on the uh, radio wanting to speak to Jimmy, but I think Jimmy it wanted wasn't to the speak day to him. They went you. into the first division. It was the day they went into the second division. Right. From the third division. Uh, she came very quickly, the two promotions, and into the second division. And uh, and I went into the um, dressing room before the game uh, just to say to Jimmy, all the best. And in and out, I thought. He said to me, um, they tell me they want me on the national radio, if we win. And I said, oh yes, they do. He said, you'll be interviewing me. I said, no, uh, the interviewing is done, as we say, down the line, the presenter in London will interview you. I'll be here, but he'll interview you. Who is that? I said, Des Lynham. What right has he to interview me? <laughs> I said, why do you say that? Because he puts the records on. I said, yes, I think he does have a record request programme. <laughs> he said, I know he does. I'm travelling up to Hartlepool and down to Torquay or wherever on a Tuesday night to watch a player. And he's putting the records. What right has he to talk to me about football? <laughs> I went upstairs to the press box and I rang the uh, match of the day. Uh, no, the, the um, grandstand. Not, not match of the day, the grandstand office in London. And I said, could I speak to somebody in some authority? And I said, um, I just want to wise you up that you will have difficulty yeah. with Jimmy Siddle. He's not happy about being interviewed by Desmond Lynham. And this rather a haughty man at the other end said, well, that is the policy. I said, I'm not trying to tell you anything about your policy. I'm trying to tell you that it will not go well. Well, took no notice anyhow, eventually. And behind the stand, there was a very narrow space in those days. It's much broader now. <coughs> Indeed, cars park there, even on match day. And, uh, but it was very narrow. And there were several hundred fans uh, dancing and shouting... Uh, we want Jimmy, we want Jimmy. We were the last pair in the dressing room. Mm -hmm. And uh, Jimmy, um, I, I put the, the headphones on him 
eventually uh, Des Lynham said we're going to Meadow Lane the must, Jimmy there must be scenes of great happiness at Knott's here you are back in the second division after some years so to speak out in the desert there must be scenes of great enthusiasm and they could hear it they could hear it Yeah. and Jimmy waited oh agonising moments before saying a word and then he said eh you could say that it gave no impression of the pleasure that was it <laughs> and he was asked one more question and one more answer and uh, then Desmond Lynham said we'll head to Liverpool to Shankly and Jimmy ripped the headphones off and he said to me you and me will go and do something special. Mm -hmm. And he produced a bottle of champagne and two glasses. And uh, we went out. They weren't interested in me, good heavens. Um, but they all swarmed around him and he battled his way through. And uh, we got down to his office and he produced the keys and in we went and closed the door and made sure it was locked. And he produced the uh, champagne and we drank and then I said, are you ready for us to go? Shall I switch on? He said, aye. So we did. And he did the most magical 15 minutes with me. The best interview he ever gave me. Really? Mm -hmm. Such a wonderful character. Wasn't 15 he? Just, minutes. Yeah. Magic. Yeah. Magic. And I remember, although it's sad to remember it in some ways, that I think at his funeral, I believe Alex Ferguson came. Yes, right? he did. He was there. Mm -hmm. I talked to him. Yes, I can vouch for it. He yeah. was there. And he held Jimmy in quite high regard. Oh, they were great friends. Yeah. Oh, yes, great friends. Yes, of course, both from Glasgow. Yeah, sure, yeah. They had yeah. that bond between them. And uh, and I gave the address at Jimmy's funeral yeah. with a big crowd there in St Mary's Church in the Lace Market. Yeah, he had a good send-off, didn't he? He did. Yeah. And you'd kind of moved slightly away from journalism by... Was it a new job at Nottinghamshire County Council? It was, yes. I was the, uh, the, the, the founder of the public relations section uh, and went there in um, 69. Um, it was the first time they'd made such an appointment and they made it because they knew uh, that changes to local government were in the offing, not sh too sure what they were going to be, but that they needed uh, somebody... Uh, who could communicate to the media, particularly, what their own reaction was when reports came out and so on. Um, and that particular thing dominated me. I did many other things as well. Um, they, they, later on in my time at County Hall, uh, there was formed by the five counties of the East Midlands, the East Midlands Forum, and uh, various duties uh, were allocated out between the five counties. Uh, so the public relations job fell to Nottinghamshire. Right. So I became the uh, I became the PR man for the East Midlands Forum, and led the campaign. Um, and people are still kind enough to acknowledge this. I led the campaign. Uh, to secure a lot of publicity for uh, the desire of the five counties to see 
independent television installed in the East Midlands. Right. And that's how we came to have central television in Renton Lane. That's right, yeah. And, of course, it's all disappeared. Yeah. Uh, And later on, there was another battle to be fought, uh, which um, I, I, again, was deeply involved in with the BBC about them setting up an East Midlands base. Yeah. And a very senior man in the BBC uh, said in a, in a very difficult meeting, um, he said, take my word for it, this East Midlands vision will never, ever come to reality. Really? And I remember saying in a very thin voice, we shall see. <laughs> and you got there in the end. We got there. Yeah. Yes. So that must have, you must have incredibly busy life then oh. at that time. Must have oh, been. yes. Yes. How did I do it all? I don't know, really. Um, and then having a role, um, an organisational role, in the Queen's Diamond Jubilee visit. Really? Uh, in 1977. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And I suppose like, like football, kind of local government full of characters... Uh, yes, there were, but the things that stick in my mind are the Queen's press secretary, now that's a pretty big post, isn't it? Definitely. Uh, was a man I knew through covering football, because he covered football for really? me. Yes, a man called Ronald Allison. Ron and I knew each other very well. <laughs> and on the day she... Uh, came into Mansfield to begin with. They'd been, she and the Duke, had been in uh, Man- in Derbyshire in the morning. They came across to Mansfield. She opened the new uh, county library in the Four Seasons shopping centre, then did a walkabout down to the town hall, uh, and there received a gift to mark her silver jubilee. And then we all piled into cars to be driven to Trent Bridge, where she was presented to the England and Australia teams. Normally happens when they're at Lords, but she'd been out of the country, the Queen had. So it had to be done at Trent Bridge. And uh, it it was a piece of work that the Assistant Chief Constable of Nottinghamshire, Jim Whitehead and I, collaborated on. We drove four times over the route and we observed strict speed limits and everything. Because every time we got to Trent Bridge, somebody or other would say to us very sharply, and you must get the Queen here for the tea interval. <laughs> and uh, because the presentation to her of the players... It was at tea. Yeah. After tea. So timing was so important. I mean, it was horrendous. Uh, there were so many people on the route, we never even got to the, the the slow point that we'd imagined. It was slower than that. Yeah. Thousands all the way on the on the route. Thousands, and at that big roundabout by the uh, end of the um, forest recreation area, Mansfield Road, the the motorcade got broken up. The first car, which is always the chief constable's car, was going up the hill. And the royal car was some distance behind. And we were further behind. Oh, no. And I was in the motorcade. And I could hear everything that was being said. 
and there was panic. I no bet, question. Yeah. Panic. Yes. Royal security had broken down. Oh, my word. But we eventually regrouped. We got to Trent Bridge and they were back on the field. <laughs> we had... we had. So she'd missed tea? Uh, well, she'd missed the opportunity for the players to be presented to her. Oh, no. And the Queen was conducted through to the President's room and sat on the balcony. And when she sat down on the balcony, the Queen did something... And I often tell this story. I was sat, st standing at the back of the president's room. The Queen did something that every woman would do. She kicked her shoes off. Really? <laughs> Just to relax? They would all do that, wouldn't they? And eventually play was suspended and she was led down on, onto the pitch for the teams, England and Australia. England, including Derek Randall, mm. uh, to be presented to her. Yeah. And then off to the QMC to name it and open it. Oh, wow. Then a change of uh, uh, attire um, to put a long evening gown on with tiara and uh, council house for dinner and a balcony appearance. Yeah. And then back to County Hall for an indoor walkabout. Oh. Uh, followed by a fireworks display for which she sat on a royal dais with Alderman Fred Rudder, the chairman of the county council, and of course the Duke. And I stood at the back of the royal dais, <coughs> couldn't see onto it, there was an awning between me and having a view. And I stood there with the man I've just mentioned, Ronald Allison. And uh, we, we were chatting away and uh, the fireworks were in the hands of the Reverend Ron Lancaster, an expert, but unlucky because the wind had changed direction <laughs> from the previous day when he did a trial, a practice <laughs> run. And on this moment, there was this rocket descending uh, and it was caught by the wind and it turned back. Oh, God. And headed towards the royal dais. <laughs> um, and, I, but we couldn't see what happened. And I said to Ron, Ron, what shall we do? And he said, can you smell burning? I said, no. He said, do nothing. <laughs> <laughs> you assumed it missed. <laughs> so we didn't do anything. Um, but, uh, oh yes, um, uh, it was, I mean, there was a lot of organisation involved, but I was culpable, yeah. along with Jim Whitehead, in not uh, getting a part of it right. Well, that must have been a long day for you and the Queen, I should imagine. <laughs> oh, um, I, I mean, a day that she couldn't, at her the age of 93, now contemplate. Do, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. no. Nor but, could the Duke. And um, kind of speaking of Nottinghamshire royalty, would it would it be right that you also got to know um, Brian Clough a little bit during your time? Yes, I did, because um, the county council set up um, uh, an arrangement with Forrest under which we had a certain number of seats on their charter flight to wherever they were playing in Europe. Right. Um, and the uh, objective was quite simple. It was to attract inward investment uh, from wherever Forrest were playing into yeah. Nottinghamshire. 
Right, so you followed Forrest as, as, as part of the council then? In and I, I went always to, um, before Forrest played there on a recce. Yeah. I used to go to wherever it was and I used to set up appointments for the chairman of the county council. But the protocol side of it, um, I mean, in East Berlin, I was sitting at breakfast one morning and uh, I was a bit shocked, really, when a very quiet voice said behind me, I think you're Colin Slater. I, uh, I said, yes, I am, and may I ask who you are? He said, I'm from the British Embassy. The ambassador has sent me. Oh. And I said, well, very nice to meet you. I'm going to have a seat. So he sat down and he said, um, the ambassador would like to invite the chairman, a man called Cecil Hempsel, no longer with us. Um, he'd like to invite your chairman for lunch. And I said, well, that's very kind. He said, would you be able to come to the embassy and meet the ambassador just to talk it through? I said, yes, of course. What time and where? So he gave me directions and I walked from the hotel to the uh, embassy and met this charming ambassador. And uh, as, as I was leaving, I said, um, I'm particularly grateful that you're going to send the car um, to provide transport. Um, and I said, I, for my part, I'll make sure that um, uh, Councillor Hempsell is uh, well ready in time. And he said, oh, uh, is there some misunderstanding? I want you to come as well. Oh. So I said, but I hadn't made any assumptions nor expectations. He said, oh, please. So I went as well. Brilliant. Yes. yes. Yeah. And uh, he said when we arrived, I suppose you had a conversation in the car? Yes, we did. You won't have talked about anything strategically important. No. <laughs> um, we've talked about how the trip is going, really. Uh, yes, he said, because it's bugged. Oh, we wow. no longer trouble to remove the bugs because they put them all back again. Yeah, because they would have still been the partition, yeah. wouldn't they, in those days? But yeah. when we'd had lunch and we were awaiting coffee, he said to his wife, will you prepare coffee for us? We'll go into the garden. And we did, and he said to us, don't get too near the rose bushes. <laughs> there are microphones there. That's incredible, isn't it? But when I tell you, look round over your left shoulder at an attic room. And he gave us that turn round, and we did. And there, there were um, members of some secret service or other Watching with guns you. trained on us. Oh, God. Oh, yes. God. <laughs> I remember Cecil Hempsall saying, I don't know how you live in this atmosphere. Yeah, it's so different, isn't it, from and the freedom said, that we were used and to. And he said, you get used to it. Oh, that's an incredible story. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. And what did you make of um, Brian Clough then? When you, did well, you I get... found that, so far as I was concerned, he used to blow a bit hot and cold. Yeah. Uh, one day he could be charm itself and chat away, and another day he could be brusque in the extreme. Yeah, yeah. So, and I never knew which Brian Clough was going to turn yeah. up, really. Yeah. Yeah, I said I did reckeys. I came back from Munich and I rang Ken Smales, the Forest Secretary, and I said to him, it's your practice always to fly back after the game. You won't be able to do that 
uh, out of Munich. You can't do it mm. because there are no flights allowed in or out of Munich Airport after 9pm, so you can't do it. Ken said, would you come and tell the boss that? I said, yes, of course I will. So I went. Ken had arranged this appointment and uh, took me down to the office and sitting behind the desk, Brian Clough said to me, I think you've something to tell me. I said, yes, I do. Uh, Ken thought that you should know about this. Uh, I've been to Munich and I come back knowing that you will not be allowed to fly out of Munich after the game. Uh, they don't allow flights in or out after 9pm. And he said, it's very kind of you to tell us, but it will be different for us. And that was what he thought. And it wasn't. No? And when Ken Smales went back to book an extra night in the different hotels that we were in, sorry, no beds. No. And in a double-decker bus, we went down the autobahn to a holiday inn <laughs> some 30 miles away <laughs> he with have... the European Cup. <laughs> he should have listened. He yes, have listened. Oh, I, I, I knew all along. And we mentioned, Colin, talking about Trent Bridge. You, you obviously had um, quite a time there too. Yes, my first connection at Trent Bridge was to get involved in 1988 which was the 150th year of Nottinghamshire playing cricket at Trent Bridge. And it was a big year. Uh, it was used to raise funds, for one thing. If you go now, to this day, into the long room, there is a quite large um, panel uh, containing the names of people who gave considerable sums of money uh, towards the year, the president of which was Leslie Crowther, yeah, had a very strong him, yeah. connection with Nottinghamshire, of course, a um, star of uh, stage and television, uh, and one of the nicest men you will ever meet. And uh, the highlight of the year, the 150 year, uh, was um, a, a banquet held in what was the new Royal Hotel, now the Crown Plaza, uh, in Woolerton Street in Nottingham. And it was a sellout occasion. And uh, Leslie was one of two speakers, uh, and the other was the famous Brian Johnston, uh, one of our leading broadcasters of all time, obviously. You definitely, yeah. And um, I was asked by the club to emcee the occasion, which I was very flattered uh, to be asked to do. And uh, I met uh, Leslie and Brian in advance uh, because I wanted to introduce them in a way that they would be happy to be introduced. Sure, yeah. So I met them in advance during the day and uh, it was a great occasion. But my own personal memory is strongest uh, about um, something I did fairly early on in the dinner after the first course had been served, uh, I made an announcement and said, ladies and gentlemen, uh, there is a very special guest here this evening. Uh, he played for Nottinghamshire in the centenary game uh, of Trent Bridge 
1938. Wow. And here in 1988, he honours us with his presence at this celebratory dinner, Mr. Joe Hartstaff. And people hadn't realised he was there. We kept him under wraps, really. Really? Yeah. And the whole place erupted. And I can remember vividly, I was sitting next to Maurice Udell on the top table. Maurice was the vice chairman of the club. And I went back to my seat and I said to him, Maurice, there's always an occasion at every function where you either kind of catch fire and the whole thing takes off or you don't. And then you've got a, a big job to do to try to create something. But, but I said, we've done it. Yeah. This is the moment. We're off. Yeah, it must have felt mm. fantastic. Yes, yeah. yes, yeah. But uh, you need a reaction, of course. That's you right, yeah. You do your yeah. part, you need a reaction. And the surprise, I suppose, all made it even yes. sort of sweeter. And such a great figure. Yeah, certainly, mm. yeah, yeah. And, and other big projects, I suppose, with your time at Trent Bridge as well? Uh, yes, well, the, the next big thing that happened, I went onto the staff on a permanent basis, if anything is permanent, in 1989, the year after the uh, 150 year. And Nottinghamshire reached the final of the Benson and Hedges Trophy. And the final, of course, was played at Lord's. Uh, and they played Essex. And uh, Essex won the toss and chose to bat first. There'd been a lot of discussion behind the scenes uh, about the final team selection. And there were differences of opinion. Mm-hmm. And the difference of opinion was whether or not to play Andy Afford, the spinner. I remember him, yeah. And uh, the difference of opinion was quite uh, marked, really. Uh, no falling out, I'm all done very civilly, uh, but between the captain, Tim Robinson, and the manager, Ken Taylor. Uh, Ken Taylor wanted Afford including. Uh, Robinson was not very sure. Uh, Rex Simpson played a part in persuading Tim Robinson that it would be the right thing to play Afford. And uh, really Ken Taylor's um, instinct that that was the right thing was justified when Afford was uh, responsible for bowling Gooch, Graham Gooch. Wow, that's a big wicket. Who'd opened the innings and he was bowled for 48. And that's really why Essex, in their innings, were restricted uh, over 55 overs to 243 for seven, and Knotts had a chance to win. They did lose some early wickets, uh, but Tim Robinson scored 86 before he was run out. Mm-hmm. Um, And later on in the day, after the match was over, he was named player of the match. Um, But that was after he collected the trophy when, in unbelievable drama and uh, tension, Notts needed four runs off the last ball of the day, which was bowled by John Lever and was bowled to Eddie Hemmings, (laughs) 
There were those who had no confidence at all that Eddie <laughs> would score four runs uh, in such circumstances, uh, but he did. I remember and, seeing it on the telly, yeah. Yeah, he did. And and uh, I viewed it, I, I stood on the player's balcony uh, in, in at Lord's, yeah. and, I, and that's where I saw it. Wow, from. brilliant. And uh, it was uh, a great win. Um, and as I say, Jim Robinson may have been the skipper and he may have got 86 and he may have been player of the match. But men mentioned to many, many Nottinghamshire cricket people the Benson and Hedges final of 1989. And they say, oh, Eddie Hemi. <laughs> That's right, yeah. The yes. first thing that comes to mind, yeah. 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 So that, that, was, uh, that was quite a highlight to have in one's first year. And of course, I mean, I remember because not long after that, I, I sort of covered a few games at uh, Trent Bridge and there were some good players and yes. the kind of Paul Johnson's, but also, I mean, Derek Randall, who you very kindly once got uh, allowed me to interview. He, he was such a character at Trent Bridge. Oh, yeah. And and um, and still is, really. Um, <laughs> I, I interviewed him uh, fairly recently, really at a meeting of the Nottinghamshire Cricket Lovers, which is a very well-supported body, meets regularly during the winter months in particular. And, uh, and I was uh, booked to interview uh, Derek. He's a... As he was when he played, you never quite know what he's going to do next. <laughs> and you have to hold your nerve and bring him back to the question that you've asked. To where you want to go. Yes, <laughs> yes. Um, otherwise, you know that you could lose complete control of this interview as the interviewer. But uh, no, he remains uh, delightful, friendly. And I always remember the doyen of Nottinghamshire sports writers, a man called Arthur Turner, um, who'd never met him because Arthur had retired before Derek started. And he was a big age, was Arthur by then. And I said, well, you, you, you need to meet him. I'll, I'll arrange it. And I did And um, when I was working there. And I will never forget um, what Arthur said because it summed it up. Arthur Turner said to Derek Randall, why people love you is because you've entertained them. Mm, definitely, definitely, yeah. And it could be the title of a book that's Derek right. Randall entertainer. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. In his own way, as big an entertainer as Leslie Crowther. Yeah, mm. and I know that obviously Randall had a big legacy at Trent Bridge, and in a way, you did as well with with the building of some of the ground. Well, the committee um, had uh, already um, embarked on one redevelopment, and that was the William Clark stand. Now, William Clark um, was really the founding father of Trent Bridge Cricket Ground. And so the William Clark stand, um, which is there to this day, a single stand and no, no, no tears to it. Although when it was being built, the footings were put in for a second tier, but it never happened. Whether it will, who knows? I'm not there now, and so it, I, I don't know what the thinking will be. Uh, but um, they then decided that they must do something more ambitious and the first thing would be to build a two-tier stand uh, in Hound Road, the Hound Road stand, which is there to this day. Because the objective 
was not only to provide a good amenity for spectators, but the strategy was to increase the capacity of the ground. Trent Bridge is the smallest of all the test match grounds in England. Right. And it was necessary to increase the capacity uh, because otherwise Nottinghamshire, this is what the committee feared at the time, uh, Nottinghamshire could lose its test match status. Sure, yeah. And it was important to keep it. So important, yeah. And uh, plans were drawn up by a new company of solicitors new to Trent Bridge, Nottinghamshire-based, Colin Maber and Associates in the lace market, and they produced this uh, plan. Um, there was uh, some uh, some dispute, really, about whether it was uh, wise to include a banqueting suite in the middle of it. Uh, but I press very hard uh, for that to be included uh, because we had no such facility. It's incredible when you think now yeah. what there is on cricket, in cricket grounds and other sports arenas. There was no such facility. There'd been something called the Century Restaurant, but nothing else, and that was that was at ground level. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, but this would be provided and and uh, and was uh, and I was charged by the committee uh, with uh, raising the money uh, a considerable amount of money I can imagine yeah. over a million pounds for the Hound Rope stand and I liked to think that it was an expression of confidence that the committee said only come back and tell us when you have some good news when you've achieved it. Wow. And so I didn't give I didn't give any account of myself uh, uh, in committee meetings, which were held every month. I never gave an account of myself. I didn't tell the chairman or the president or the vice chairman. Nobody knew uh, what I was doing and how I was getting on until I knew that I'd achieved it. Well, that must have been a lovely committee meeting to attend <laughs> that one. Well, yeah, well, uh, I did first of all. Uh, tell President Jack Baddeley, Chairman Cliff Gillett, Vice Chairman Maurice Udell. I told them first. Okay, it's still a fantastic ground to this day, isn't it? It's a lovely, oh, it still lovely is, place of to course, watch cricket. Um, uh, Mabers were also responsible for designing that quite brilliant new stand on the Ratcliffe Road side of the ground, which was uh, officially opened by Sir Gary Sobers, and uh, I was back there to do the emceeing job yeah. for that as well. I'd left the wonderful uh, staff by then, but yeah. I was I was back there. And I believe is it right that um, another cricket lover in in the county, Ken Clark, you, you had a bit of an association with him. Uh, yes, I, I I I know him extremely well, and I get on extremely well with him. That's politics aside. And uh, it, when he became Chancellor of the Exchequer, not immediately, but um, in the course of his four years uh, as Chancellor, he invited the Nottinghamshire Committee and all the officials to go for a visit to Number 11 Downing Street. And we made a day of it. We set off early-ish from Trent Bridge and in London, uh, members of the party as full coach, members of the party were all free to do what they wanted to do themselves. 
Um, everybody did what they wanted. We, no marshalling of, this is what we're doing. We pleased ourselves. I went to the theatre, uh, but I said on the bus, what matters is that we are at Downing Street, at the gates, by 5.15 to be admitted. I got there just a bit before five o'clock, made myself known to the police, and uh, they said that if I could vouch for everybody in the party uh, by nodding them through, mm -hmm. they wouldn't do any checking at all. They'd trust you to do that. Yeah. yeah, so I nodded them all through. Ken gave a speech of welcome. Uh, of course, as you may imagine, with great polish. Um, and then took us all through a connecting door to number 10 Downing Street. Oh, wow. And took us into the uh, cabinet room. Corridors of power, then. <laughs> yeah, we were, we were there in the cabinet room. And when we went back into number 11, he said, now, this is when food is going to be served and you can go where you like in number 11, but nobody is to go through on their own into number 10. Yeah, yeah. Of course, John Major was Prime Minister. Yeah. Uh, nobody is to go through on their own, so nobody did. Um, and uh, I uh, spent my time eating uh, a very pleasant uh, buffet meal in the library in 11 Downing Street, which is lined by bound copies of Hansard. Really? And I remember sitting there. Nobody else went into the library uh, initially. And I remember sitting there. And what I wanted to find was Hansard with, of course, it's verbatim what he said in the house. And uh, I wanted to find some speech of Churchill's in the war. Yeah which was all recorded there. And I did. Really? Yeah. I mean, I fished through a few volumes yeah. before I found something. But I, I found something that was incredibly amazing, I thought, was for me. Because I found a speech that Churchill had made just a day or two after the death on active service of the Duke of Gloucester. Now, there's a lot of stories about how long Churchill took to prepare speeches. There can't have been much time over the that preparation one, yeah. of that. He yeah. didn't have the time. And, and it's, the, the language of it is majestic. Mm -hmm. and, and I read it, I read it all. With, <gasps> with it, it, if I say it was um, not too difficult for Churchill, he was obviously a friend of the Duke of Gloucester. He knew him. Yeah, so he could put feeling into yes, it. Yeah, yes, yes, yeah. and did. Um, and I was reading um, the, this speech uh, when the door opened and in came some of the Nottinghamshire people. And what are you doing in here? I said, I'm uh, reading this speech of Churchill's in Hansard. <laughs> what better place to do it, really? <laughs> yes, in the library of uh, number 11. But we had a very good uh, day. We had a very good visit. Uh, and uh, it remains a, a vivid memory. I mentioned it to Ken Clark only a few weeks ago. And uh, he said, oh, that's a long time ago. <laughs> I said, yeah, but well remembered. And a big thank you. 
So going back then to uh, to Notts County, I mean, obviously, obviously the Jimmy Cyril era was, was incredible. Mm. Um, so it was the Neil Warnock era. Well, I was going to say because I mean, if you look at some of the managers we've had, you know, Howard Wilkinson, yes. Neil Warnock, Sam Allardyce. Yes. There have been some great managers. There have indeed. Yeah. Yes. And, and I suppose all had their own qualities. Yes. And you get and what always amazed me did any of them ever kind of speak to you when they came to the club about your opinion of it or or one ask for advice and only one man Sven really Sven yeah I um, I mean the the arrival at a mass press conference was just unbelievable the 1862 suite at which you can sit down theatre style something like 300 people was absolutely packed with journalists and photographers. Packed. Uh, but a couple of days afterwards, um, I think it was two, but it could have been three, um, he arranged to give me the first private interview that he'd given. So um, I went to his office on the top floor at Meadow Lane and said, thank you ever so much for this. You're a busy man. Do you want to get going and get rid of me? He said, no, I do not. Right. I want, first of all, before we come to the interview, I first of all want to talk about you. Really? I want to know about you. You have been here a long time. You see matches. You know people. So let's talk about you and what you know. That's fascinating. Yeah, and no other manager has ever said anything like it. Yeah, so you thought he was a decent man. Oh, I do think that. Yeah, I do yeah. think that. Yeah. Yes, and probably completely different in character to either Allardyce or Warnock, I should imagine. Oh yes, yeah. yes. Oh, most certainly. Quite yes. a lively time with Warnock, but such a successful time as well. Yes, it was successful with the two Wembley playoff finals, where Knox won twice, beating Tranmere and then Brighton. To go then into the first division again. Yeah. Yes. Um, and of course, under Allardyce, having a record-breaking season. Yeah. 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 And then uh, with Ericsson and um, the kind of Munto fiasco, yes. unfortunately, set a bit of a tone for knots in the last few years. And I think this this last season has been, in a way, more surreal than any things yes. that have been going on uh, away from the club. It has uh, been surreal, and of course, it's ended in a kind of tragedy with Notts relegated out of the Football League, as founder members of the Football League and as the oldest league club in the world. Yeah. They are now going to be playing non-league football in the National League. Um, unthinkable, unwanted and uh, something of an embarrassment, really. And I think... I've seen it in some reports. Unfortunately, I wasn't at Swindon, but I think you might have said it as well. The word that just sad. Yes. Really sad. Yes. Yeah. Yes. There were a lot of very upset people. Two thousand three hundred Knots fans went, um, and of course they had getting on for twenty minutes of that game on Saturday when Knots were ahead, uh, and when Macclesfield were behind. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it didn't finish like that, as we all know. And Knots are relegated into the National League, and uh, with that kind of relegation, and after the kind of season it's been, uh, they can have no complaints, really. Um, but 
what they will have, and they know it, my words, they know it better than I do, but they are going to have an absolute wagon load of issues to deal with. Mm -hmm. It's going to be a very difficult summer, but unless they can find answers to some of the many, many problems uh, that there are at Notts County, they will not have a very successful time in the National League next season. They need, uh, with some determination and a bit of luck, they need to get everything sorted out well before the start of next season. This season with Nolan, Kewell and Ardley, Mm. um, what did you make of each one of those managers? Um, I didn't find it possible to get too close to Harry Kewell. I think I'm not alone in saying that. Um, uh, Of course, there was a personal sadness associated with the timing of Kevin Nolan's departure from the club because he'd just moved house to Nottingham Mm. just living here and he still is living here and I have seen him Mm -hmm. I've spent some time with him uh, and we had a perfectly amiable conversation Uh, and then I found um, Neil Ardley one of the nicest men that I've ever met in the game really yeah absolutely yeah so it would be a bonus to hang on to him um, from that point of view, it would, yeah. because nobody um, conducts himself better than Neil Ardley. You can't say of all managers that they always conduct themselves well, but Neil Ardley does. Mm. He's a credit to the game, as well as to himself. Good. And do you, do you have, there must be concerns about knots, but do you have hopes for the future then? Well, I have hopes that they will stabilise, that they will use this terrible fate of being relegated to the National League to stabilise and recover. Uh, But they need to get back, in some senses, to what County always were when they were at their best, bringing through young players. Where today are the likes of Tommy Johnson and Mark Draper and, Mm. in another era, uh, Dean Yates or Dave Watson... You can go on and on. I mean, the the first two in my long period at Meadow Lane who shone through from the earliest times were two forwards. No longer with us in either case. Jeff Astle, mm-hmm. who went on to be a hero for West Bromwich Albion and scored their winning goal in an FA Cup final, and Tony Hakeley. Yeah. Um, and uh, they were such stars as young men playing alongside each other so it's recreating it's finding it's having the right scouting system it's having the talent available to you from somebody who can say there's a young player who will make the grade Mm -hmm. and I believe that doing that is a much more difficult job than going out and spending a fortune on players who are already established yeah yeah it's a big big challenge and not amongst many other priorities, my words, <laughs> who am I to talk about one priority when they, they have so many. But they need to start recreating Meadow Lane as being a place where young players graduate into being great players. Yeah, I think uh, nearly all of the fans would love to see that happen, definitely. I'm sure they would. Definitely. And what, I mean, you've... 
been involved with football for, for so long, Colin. Mm. Uh, how do you see it now when you compare it to as it was and how it is now? In your mind, is it still a beautiful game? It's played at a much faster pace than ever it was. Um, uh, the sides early on that I used to watch um, used to play at a much slower tempo, uh, so it's quicker mm. than ever it was. Um, but when you're having a good time, and Notts haven't had a good time for too long, but when you're having a good time, it's still as entertaining and as absorbing as ever. I want those days back, mind you, but yes. so do thousands of others. That's right, yeah, yeah. And I know that away from football, um, I mean, I'm, I'm just looking down some of the awards. Um, and I know you, you've been involved in so many local charities, offering up your time for free to support them. You've had the Freedom of the Borough of Broxtow, uh, Deputy Chairman of the Nottingham um, Bench of Magistrates. No, chairman. Chairman. Do yes. apologise, Chairman. Um, the Hall of Fame at Notts County, the first yes. non-football inductee into yes. that. Honorary Life President. Yeah. Um, a Sony Lifetime Achievement Award. Um, you've been involved in the Lifeline Committee at Meadow Lane, which I know is something very dear to you. Yeah. Um, you even had a tram named after you within Nottingham. Yes. But I suppose nothing really tops um, 2001 in the MBE. Uh, well, it can't, can it really? Because that's um, that, that gives you a day at the palace um, and uh, a day which I will always remember and treasure, uh, going to the palace, going the day before deliberately, going to a show. Obviously, you're allowed to take three people with you and, and I did, and the four of us went to a show on the... Um, we went to the Theatre Royal Drury Lane for My Fair Lady. And uh, then the day itself at the Palace, we were in a taxi going down the Mall, and the taxi driver, they know everything, don't they, London taxi drivers? And he said, You haven't got the Queen, mate. I said, Oh, how do you know that? He said, the Royal Standard ain't flying. <laughs> she ain't in residence. Uh, and when I got into the palace, it was to find out that it was going to be Prince Charles. Right. Um, well, I'd twice been presented to the Queen, uh, once at the end of that royal visit in 77, and on another visit when she visited the courthouse. Uh, so I thought, oh, well, I've never met Prince Charles, so I look forward to that. Um, and um, I, I didn't quite know how he would be, um, but in fact he was extremely relaxed and, and uh, friendly and chatty um, and made it very easy and put one at one's ease in my case, mm -hmm. yes. Um, no, it was, it, was, um, it was a good day. The investiture took place on a Friday in December. And the following day, Notts County were playing at Wickham. So I set off again on the Saturday morning to Wickham Wanderers. And that's in Buckinghamshire. And I thought, well, Buckingham Palace one day. <laughs> the um, visit to Wickham Wanderers in Buckinghamshire the next day. But my, what a gulf between them. <laughs> what a difference. What yeah. a difference. <laughs> that's a marvellous story. And I know that... Um, 
it's been so, such an, an incredible life, Colin, and a long way it continued. But when you look back, have there been any regrets, footballing-wise or otherwise? I try not to have regrets uh, because I've experienced so much uh, which has been interesting, challenging, pleasurable. Um, I, I try not to have regrets. You're going to have regrets about odd incidents and so on. But I try not to dwell on those uh, because overall uh, I've had what uh, the sort of life that many people would like to have and I've been privileged to have and I'm ever so grateful. And I know in 2017 there was a partial retirement from the commentary side but what, do you, what are your plans for the future? <laughs> I don't make plans really. I wait to see what um, requests come my way. Because I still do a bit of broadcasting for Radio Nottingham. Yeah. I was on radio three times over the past weekend as Knots went and, and, and uh, didn't survive at uh, Swindon. And um, so I, I shall be as available as ever people want me to be yeah. uh, for as long as they want me to be and for as long as I can measure up to requirements. I'm sure you will, Colin. It's been... Uh an absolute privilege speaking to you and uh, thank you very much. Thank you.